The book of Hebrews, where we're at in chapter 2. So as always, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to bring a Bible or some way you can look at God's Word. Open there, Hebrews chapter 2. A few weeks ago, I, in our study here of Hebrews, I asked this question, who is Jesus Christ? I said one of the most important questions we could ever ask Who is Jesus Christ? All important question. And we have seen over these few weeks the answer to that question in the opening chapters of this book, this letter, this sermon letter of Hebrews. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the son. In fact, he's the eternal son. God, the son. The very essence and nature of God He's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. And now he is uniquely the heir of all things as the exalted son at God's right hand. That's who he is. This morning, I want to ask a second question equally as important and really follows on from that question. This question. Why did Jesus have to suffer and die? Why did Jesus have to suffer and die? Not simply why did Jesus suffer and die, but why did he have to suffer and die? We want to think of there's a necessity behind this. Why did Jesus have to suffer and die? This is right at the heart of our Christian faith. It's what we've been singing of this morning. It's at the heart of our Christian faith, yet perhaps... It's the most peculiar and the strangest thing about our faith. Unlike any other so-called religion or faith. It is strange. It's this intrinsic paradox that lies at the heart of God's redemptive purposes. It's the great plot twist of God's redemptive plan. The cross. We have a cross back here. How bizarre. This bloody, humiliating instrument of execution. So full of shame. That we take as the emblem of our faith. To the Jewish people, Paul wrote, it's a stumbling block. Could not conceive of the Messiah, the one they've been hoping for, the promised one, this great deliverer, could not conceive of him being crucified, dying, being crucified, put to death on a cross. It seems so opposite of God's purpose. To the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, it's just flat-out foolishness. It just doesn't make any sense. It's bizarre. It's unsophisticated. It's even barbaric. Foolishness. Today, it continues to be foolishness. It's a little more sanitized today since we're so far removed from crucifixion. But yet, this cross, this death of Christ, stands contrary to the positive believe in yourself, you can do anything religion of our culture. 
At the heart of our faith is a weak, bloodied, crucified Savior. Why? As we're reading through the book of Acts, I was thinking of this as Parker was reading. As we're reading through these book of Acts, the, the early church, these apostles, their preaching and their defense of the gospel had to answer this question. They had to. Only why Jesus suffered and died, but how is that in keeping with God's purpose, with God's plan? As I said, it seems to be this paradox. It seems to be so contrary. So you'll see that as we read the book of Acts, their defense of the sufferings of the Messiah. Now, the author of Hebrews, where we're at, I think, just like he answered who Jesus Christ is, he answers this question in perhaps the most direct and the most comprehensive way of anywhere in the Bible. And he begins that answer in chapter 2. That's where we're going to turn now. So let's look, look at your Bible. Acts chapter 2. Just remind you where we're at. In case you're new this morning or your memory's just not that great, like <laughs> most of us. Remember where we're at in this letter. The, the big purpose of this letter, he's writing to this congregation. His pastoral purpose is to encourage, to exhort them to hold fast to Christ. Don't turn away. Don't fall away. Hold fast to Christ. They're in danger of growing dull and turning away, it seems. So he's exhorting them to hold fast. And he, he begins in chapter 1. I'll give you a one-line summary of chapter 1, what we saw. He begins by stating that God's final, definitive, final word has come in His Son, who is exalted as the heir of all things. That's what he's saying. Pay attention because the final revelation of God, the definitive revelation has come in His Son. Not just through angels, but in His Son. And who is that son? Well, as I said at the beginning, he is none other than the eternal son, the radiance of God's glory, who is now exalted as the heir of all things at God's right hand. Far greater than angels. That's who he is. So pay attention. Don't neglect this final word. And it's a word of salvation. It's not another law. It's a word of promise. It's a word of salvation in the Son. Oh, pay attention. Don't neglect it. So after exhorting us at the beginning of chapter 2 to not neglect this final word in the Son, this great salvation, here's my one-line summary of chapter 2. He now proceeds to tell us how, how, the Son came to be the exalted Son, the heir of all things, namely by His incarnation and suffering. So, that's His summary, chapter 2. How, how did this Son come to be the heir of everything, come to be exalted as the heir of all things, come to be the author of this great salvation? By his incarnation, becoming a man, and his sufferings. So here now, he's going to begin to answer why. 
Why did the son suffer and die? Why? Let's look at verse 9 just to pick up where we're at here. This is where we left off last week. As he's beginning to unfold more who the son, this exalted son is also the, the, the incarnate man, the, the suffering son. He, he says there in chapter 2 that the exalted eternal son is the man of Psalm 8. Psalm 8. Who is the one who sits at God's right hand until he puts all things under his feet? That's exalted. Well, that one is the man, the man, the human of Psalm 8. Jesus is. And so he says in verse 9, here's his explanation of it. So just look at it. I'll put it on the screen and just read it slowly. Make sure you get all of this, what he's saying. He says in verse 8, he says, we, we don't presently see all things subjected to Christ, do we? The world continues in rebellion. But what do we see? Here's what he says, verse 9. We see the one made a little lower than angels. It's referring to his incarnation. His becoming a man. He was made, the eternal son was made a little lower than angels. It's a humiliation. He becomes a man. Who is that? Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. There's his exaltation. It's on the basis of this suffering and death that we're going to begin to think on this morning that he's crowned with glory and honor. And what's the purpose of all this? What's the purpose of that eternal son being made lower than the angels and enduring the suffering and death and then being crowned. What's the purpose? He gives it at the end so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. There he is. He might die. Suffer and die. He might taste death for everyone. That's the purpose of his incarnation that is becoming man and his sufferings that he might taste death. So here we're introduced now, first time explicitly to the death of the Son, Jesus, the one made lower than the angels. He became man in order that he might taste death, and we're told here that somehow it benefits us. It's for everyone. It's for us. I'm not yet told, how does that work? How does this death relate to us? Why, why was it necessary? Why did Jesus suffer and die? So he's going to begin explaining. And in some ways, the rest of the letter he's going to explain. <laughs> he's going to give it directly and he's going to give it comprehensively. And so we're, just going to, we're going to glory in this over these months of why he died and what it means and how it connects to us. But let me, let me read the next part. Now, we're not going to see all the answer this morning. As I said, in one sense, the rest of the Hebrews is the answer. But he gives a very direct answer in the rest of chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. And it's a very rich answer. <laughs> so we're, we're going to look at the first part of it, this 10 through 13. So I'm not going to give you the full answer and make connect all the dots as to why Jesus had to suffer and die. We're going to begin to see it. Begin to see it. And maybe things that might be somewhat new to you. We might know maybe the, the very basic answer, and the basic answer is, is a glorious truth, right? We, we sang of it. He died to pay for sin. But the writer of Hebrews fleshes this out in quite fullness. Why did he 
die. So let me just read the first part. Verse 10, he's going to begin explaining. See it? For, after saying he, he might taste death forever, and for, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For indeed, both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all from one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren or brothers or brothers and sisters. Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here or behold, I and the children whom you have given me. This is the first part of his answer. So my heading, why the sufferings of the son? Why the sufferings of the son? I'm going to give you a few things this morning that he unfolds for us. But before I get to those, I want you to notice what one author called his shocking thesis. <laughs> his shocking thesis. It's at the beginning of verse 10. It was fitting for him to do this. You hear that? It was fitting for him, for God, to do it this way. I want you to be stunned by that. As I said, what seems most unnatural to us, what confounds many, what becomes a stumbling block to Jewish people, foolishness to Gentiles, this author said is most appropriate for him to do it this way. <laughs> That's remarkable. It was fitting for him. This is What's he mean by that? Let me give you just a couple notes here. The son's sufferings were appropriate to the character and purpose of God. That's what he's saying. The son's suffering, because that's what he's going to talk about, were appropriate. That's what fitting means. It's congruent. It's appropriate to the character and purpose of God. So not only... As we'll see, are the sufferings necessary, but they are an appropriate expression of the very divine character. It's not remarkable. They reveal something about God and who He is that's very appropriate for who He is. <laughs> that we otherwise don't see in all of its clarity and beauty. It was fitting, he says, to do it. He's not apologizing for the death of Christ. He's not apologizing for the cross. He's saying it was, it was fitting. It's appropriate for God to do it this way. It's not unethical. It's not, as some have tried to assert even today, immoral. There are those authors who claim to be even in the church who think that any notion of Christ being punished, dying for our sin, is called, quote, cosmic child abuse. You know that? People who reject this say, it's ugly, it's, it's unethical. He says, it's appropriate, it's fitting. It's exactly right. It's fitting for who? Notice, notice his description. 
It's, it was fitting for him. And then he doesn't just go on to say why. He, he gives this description of God, this circumlocution for God, a way of talking about God. Do you see the phrase? It was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things. Who's that? That's God. For whom are all things and through whom are all things. That is, everything has come to pass through him, all created things. We've already seen this. But not only by him or through him, but for him. All things are for him. For his purpose. What a description of God. He's not only the author of everything, he's the chief end of everything. As we learned in Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things. That's what he's saying. The emphasis on for all things or all things are for him. The emphasis on that God is is bringing all things to its intended end, which is him, destiny. So why does he say that after saying it was fitting for him? Why does he go to that description? Instead of just saying it was fitting for God. I think this, I'll just give you one more note under this shocking thesis that it was fitting for God to do this. The son's sufferings are central to God's purpose and destiny for all things. I think that's his connection. It was fitting for him for whom are all things. And he's thinking here specifically of the sufferings of the son. The sufferings of the son fit into this category that all things, the sufferings are for him. They are central to God's purpose and destiny for all things. That is, the cross, the sufferings of Christ stand right at the heart of God's purpose. The cross, the death of Jesus, his sufferings, is not merely a reluctant plan B by God because mankind screwed up. Sometimes that's how it's presented. It's just, it's what I had to do because of what happened. Now, there's truth to that. There's a sense which absolutely it's the response of God, the gracious response of God because of man's sin. We're going to see that, man's condition. But before that and beneath that, this is God's eternal purpose in Christ from before the foundation of the world. This is no plan B. Oh, it's fitting for him for whom are all things. This is, his, this is God's eternal purpose in Christ as a way of exalting the Son as the Savior of His people. So just take that in. As we wrestle with why He did this, know that it was appropriate. So that, that's the thesis. Now let me, I'm going to give you just three kind of quickly reasons for His suffering. At least three here in this beginning text. We'll get to more Next week. Now, let me let me give you the ultimate answer, just because this is where he's going in his text. But he's building us there uh, a little bit slowly. 
What's the ultimate answer of why Jesus had to suffer and die? Why the sufferings of the son? The ultimate culminating answer that he's going to get to at the end of chapter two is that he, Jesus, might become our merciful and faithful high priest. That's what he's going to say. Verse 17, that he'd become our merciful and faithful high priest. That's his end point. And then he's going to take most of the rest of the letter to explain what it means that he's a high priest, that he's merciful and faithful as a high priest. So we're going to get there, but we're building. So that's the end point, but let's, let me give you a few here just in our verses. Here's number one. Why the sufferings of the Son? Number one, the means to perfect the pioneer of salvation. The means to perfect the pioneer of salvation. That's what he goes on to say. So put it together. Look at verse 10 again. For it was fitting for him, and you're asking to do what? You got to go to the end to perfect the author or I'll argue pioneer of their salvation through sufferings. Sufferings are the means of perfecting the author or pioneer of sufferings. Sufferings are of salvation. Sufferings are the means. And get by when the writer of Hebrews uses sufferings. Notice it's plural. So he's going to think of everything as Jesus takes on humanity, is made lower than the angels, all that he experiences in his trials and temptations culminating in his death. Death is the great suffering of Jesus, but that's the culmination of these sufferings of Jesus. So he's, he means all of it, and he's saying that's the means by which God was fitting for God to make perfect, to perfect the pioneer of salvation. Now, that might trouble us when we hear that word, to perfect as if he wasn't perfect, <laughs> right? You're saying he was imperfect, like had some deficiencies and God had kind of used suffering to kind of purify him, to get him to the point where he'd be the perfect savior. No. It's not what he means, and you know that's not what he means, because this book, of all books, insists that Christ was sinless. He was without sin from the word go. So no, so what does it mean? Well, it's not as common for us, but this word to perfect, to make perfect, has the idea of to qualify, to consecrate, to establish. This is the word that's used in the context of Old Testament priests. And that's our context here, as I said, we're going to get to his high priesthood, Old Testament priest, when they were consecrated. This is the same word, to perfect. Not moral improvement, but qualified for this office. So what does he mean? Here's, I'll give you my one line summary here. His sufferings, death, qualified or consecrated him as the all-sufficient Savior. That's what he's going at. His sufferings culminating in his death are what qualify or consecrate him as the all-sufficient Savior. He's made perfect. He's perf perfected as the author of salvation. That's what he's getting at. So it's not a moral improvement. Yet, yet, it is a completion of a process that is experiential to the man Jesus. That's necessary for him. Through assuming a human nature, 
and living a life of complete obedience in the midst of suffering, trial, temptation, culminating in an obedient suffering unto death, he is consecrated, qualified as Savior. If you just turn over a page, in my Bible, just a page over to Hebrews 5, he brings this concept up again. So you can look there. I don't have this on the screen, sorry. Just, just in your Bible there, Hebrews 5, verse 8 says this. Although he was a son, the eternal son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Yeah, not that he was ever disobedient, no. But he is it's part of his qualification. He's trusting his father in obedience, in his suffering, in his trials. And, verse 9, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Here it is, verse 10, being designated by God as a high priest. So it includes his sufferings by which this qualification is going on. That he's equipped to be our savior, not from disobedience to obedience, not from imperfection to perfection, but this unique qualification for him to be the savior culminating in his death that sanctifies him or sets him apart, designates him as savior. So, again, not moral perfection, but what some authors have called vocational perfection of the savior. His office, what he's doing as Savior. This is not a contradiction between his eternal perfection as the Son and being made perfect in his vocation as a fully adequate Savior. That's his emphasis. So it is his sufferings and death as a man that have equipped him to be our representative Savior. He is, it says, made or to perfect the, mine reads, the author of, of salvation. Back in chapter 2 there. The author of salvation. The archegos of salvation. It's a hard word to translate. So your Bible may have something different. May have leader, prince, captain, source. Hard word to translate and it really the context kind of helps take on the specific nuance of this word. In fact, we read it Already in Acts chapter 3, Parker read it for us. The words used four times of Jesus, twice in Acts, twice in Hebrews. And there, author, he read of salvation. You, you killed the author of life. He said. So the same word there, so it could be translated that. But I think in this context, pioneer is, is probably the best nuance of this word. It's a pioneer. We don't use that word much. Pioneer. One who opens a path enabling others to follow. I think that's the sense here. And in chapter 12, when he, he's going to use it again. It's one, one who, this is this archegos, one who, who goes before. So yes, he's the leader, and he's the source of the salvation, but the nuance here is he, he's going before, blazing the trail, opening the path for us to follow, securing our passage. Path to what? Well, he's going to say it in just a minute, path to glory. Our final salvation. That's how he thinks of him. He is made perfect. He is designated as our savior. That is as the pioneer of our salvation. As the one who has gone before. He will be called in chapter 6 the forerunner. 
a related idea. He goes before us, but here he has made the path. That's what a pioneer does, right? A pioneer is one who goes into a new land or pioneers a new product. They're a pioneer. They go, but not just for themselves. They are pioneer in the sense that others are going to follow. And that's the sense here. So that leads to number two. Why the sufferings of the son? Number two, the means to bringing many sons to glory. The means of bringing many sons to glory. So he's kind of building here. The first, to perfect the pioneer of our salvation, is really a means to this one, to bring many sons to glory. Notice how he says it there in verse 10. Back up there. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the pioneer of their salvation through suffering. See it? God's, God's purposing to bring sons to glory, and he's, he's going to do that through perfecting, qualifying the son as Savior. So just, just note here, first, God's purpose is to bring his children to glory. God's purpose is to bring his children to glory. What's that mean? Life in his very presence. This is God. So when it says it's fitting for him, we're talking about God, for whom are all things and through him, in bringing many sons to glory. This is God doing. He is leading Bringing many sons to glory. Now, don't trip on the word sons. He means family. Sons and daughters, we'd say. All of us. He uses son to connect us to the son. Right? Because we're connected to him. We stand in this similar, same relationship as the son. That's what he's going to go on to say. So he's, he's bringing many sons to glory. One of God's chief goals. Remember, it's the God for whom are all things. What is God doing? What's he about? What's his purpose? Is to bring his children to glory. That's what he's doing. To bring many sons to glory. A, a, multi, a vast, countless multitude to glory is what he's doing. God is doing that. He's leading, bringing us to glory. Again, to glory is just that's a shorthand way of referring to that final salvation, which is the presence of God, which which is this resurrected, glorified. We talk about state being made new in the very presence of God. That's where Christ is our trailblazer, our pioneer, blazed the path. He is seated there and the Father's bringing us to that very place, to his glory. How's he doing that? Well, again, connect the, connect the text. He is bringing these sons, sons and daughters to glory through our leader pioneer, through Jesus, through our leader pioneer, that's how he's bringing us to glory, right? So you make that connection there. Oops, excuse me. 
He's bringing us to glory through him. So the, the, actually, those two words are related, built off the same word, to lead us to glory through our leader, through the pioneer. Sufferings are necessary to qualify him as our savior through whom God leads us, brings us to glory. And, and here again is that image in the background is that image of Moses, wilderness, Moses leading to the promised land. And we know how that went. And we're going to read that in chapter 3 and 4. But here, one so much greater than Moses. Because he's not just leading us. He is the pioneer. He has cleared the path for us to bring us to the glory of God. That's the idea. So, here's the first place now in the, in the letter where the author connects the exalted son and his incarnation and suffering, he connects it directly to us. Remember he said he tasted death for us. Well, here, here we're beginning to understand that he is qualified as the Savior to bring us to glory. This affects us. So let me, let me get now to the last, the third. Again, it was fitting for him to perfect the pioneer of our salvation through suffering. What, why is it fitting for God to rescue us this way? Why is suffering? Here's the third. Number three, the means to fully identify with his children. It's the means by which the son fully identifies with the children, the sons that are being brought to glory. Again, look at verse 11 now. After saying it was fitting for God to perfect this pioneer of their salvation through sufferings, he's just going to give more explanation. For indeed, verse 11, for indeed, he's just deepening the argument why it was fitting to perfect the author of salvation through sufferings. Because the question we should be asking, how, how do these sufferings, how do they connect to us? Yeah, he, he suffered and he died. What's that have to do with you? What's that have to do with me? How does it connect? Why does it connect to us? So he's, he's going to show, and he's beginning to show that here in this third reason for his suffering, the means of fully identifying with his children. So he says it like this. Now, follow him carefully. Look, look at the words of verse 11. For indeed, both he who sanctifies, who's that? That's Jesus in this context. Jesus. He who sanctifies. To sanctify, again, is one of those Bible words. Sanctify means to make holy. Here, the book of Hebrews has the idea of being designated for God by having our sins wiped away, cleansed. That's sanctified. Who does that? Jesus. He who sanctifies. So he's, he's just, he's giving these, he's dropping these little hints about what he's going to talk about. How does Jesus do that? How does he sanctify us? That is, 
make us holy, cleanse our sins, present us to God. How does he do it? Well, that's what he's going to get to in the book. So he likes to drop these little things that just anticipate where he's going. He's not explaining that here. But notice he says, he who sanctifies, Jesus, and those being sanctified. Who's that? That's us. That's the sons up in verse 10, the children, the sons and daughters. He who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified. Again, he's hinting. Here's our need. This is what our need is. We need to be sanctified. We need to be cleansed. We need to be set apart. Holy. How's that going to happen? We'll get to it. So this is how he phrases it. He's beginning to connect it now to, to us that Jesus somehow in this suffering is sanctifying us, setting us apart. But here he's not going to explain it. What is he going after here? Just finish the sentence with him. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one. Are all from one. He's getting at this profound unity, identity of the one who sanctifies with those who are being sanctified. The the son with the sons, with us. We're all from one. Now, he doesn't say explicitly what the one is. So your translations probably fill in something. One origin, one nature, one father. Likely, because of what he concludes afterwards about being called his brothers, he has the idea of this one family. So I'd probably say it this way. He shares, that is the son, the one who is sanctifying us, shares a common humanity with us. We are all from one father, one family. It's probably the idea. This, he's identifying with us. It's really remarkable. We're all from one he shares this humanity with us. We share the same family. We have the same father. So he, what he's doing here now, he's, he's going to begin to, to try to help us understand how this suffering of this son relates to us. How can it relate to us? Because we're all from one. The same common humanity, the same family. So he's, he's going to help us understand how this suffering of the son, how it impacts us, how it connects. And, and at the heart of or the base of how that can happen is because we're all from one. He identifies completely with us. He's going to represent us perfectly. He's going to experience all that we experience without sin to be our savior. That's why his sufferings. In his humanity to fully identify with us, God's children. We're all from one. Now, again, God is Father in differing ways, complementary ways. Remember, he's the one who sanctifies, Jesus is, and we are those being sanctified. And yet, he shares our humanity. We are all of the same family. We are all from one. That's how this is going to work. That's why that death of Jesus, that suffering of Jesus, is going to relate to you and me because we're all from one. We share this commonality. We'll see more of that. Therefore, let me just give this last point here. He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to call us 
brothers and sisters, see him draw that there in verse 11? Since we're all from one, as one humanity, one father, that's why he is not ashamed to call them, the children, brothers. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to own us as his family. That's really remarkable. He's not ashamed to identify with us by assuming our humanity in his suffering and death and making us holy. He's not ashamed. He publicly attests that you're his family, brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed of you, me. He identifies with us. Just let that sink in to you. Because we are so prone to feel shame, to feel ashamed. All kinds of reasons. All kinds of reasons. We don't measure up. That's how we feel. We've blown it in the past. We've been mistreated or abused by someone else. Our looks, our body shape, our ability or lack of abilities. Oh, so many things call us to feel ashamed, to feel shame. So just let it land on you. He is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. And as you wrestle, as we all do with shame and wondering, is that true? So I think he's probably ashamed of me. Look to the cross. You want the public attestation that he's not ashamed to identify you with you as family? Look to the cross. That's what he's doing. Assuming our humanity, purchasing our redemption, making us holy. So as those things rise up, Oh, look, not, not here, not to yourself. Don't, don't, don't preach to yourself how, how actually wonderful you are and how worthy you are to the cross, to the cross where he purchased you and said, I'm not ashamed of you. I own you as my brother and sister. No one will take that away. Oh, enjoy it. So, so let me, let me finish. Which is letting the words of Jesus sing to us here this morning. Because he, he substantiates this by quoting three Old Testament texts. And makes Jesus the speaker of them. Now I don't have time to explain his use of the Old Testament. I wish I did. That's, a, that's just way beyond our ability. That's not the important thing. How he gets from those texts to Jesus. Um, fascinating and love to talk about that. But... The main thing he wants to see is th these are Jesus' words. 
And this is what Jesus said. So, so put this together. Remember, remember in chapter 1, we got to overhear the Father speaking to the Son. Yeah. He loved to quote the Father speaking to the Son. What did the Father say to the Son? He said, you are my Son. Today I've begotten you. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for... That's the Father speaking to the Son. And now, in some sense, we hear the Son's response. What's the Son's response to that great invitation to sit at the Father's right hand? And all that that means. Remember what it means to sit at the Father's right hand. It means to be made lower than the angels, take on humanity, suffer, die, be exalted. Well, here we have the Son's response. We have the Son speaking. So let it sing to you today. What did he say? Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So Psalm 22, 22. The Son affirms his brotherhood with God's people at his exaltation. Again, we don't have time to read through. You go, go home and read Psalm 22 today. It's a, it's a glorious messianic psalm that Jesus used on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and then in verse 22 comes the great turn where he, it's, there's deliverance. And the writer sees that's the exaltation of Jesus, the resurrection and exaltation. And what does he say at that? I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters in the congregation. They're my brothers and sisters. I will make you known. That's who he calls us. Isaiah 8, 17. Again, verse 13, he says, I will put my trust in him. That's from Isaiah 8, 17. What's that? That's the response. He responds with a trusting obedience to his father's purpose. To that invitation, sit at my right hand and all that it entails to take on human flesh, to be made lower, to suffer, to die. What will the son do? I will put my trust in him, this trusting obedience all through that humiliation. I will trust in the father always. I will do it. I will do it. And I will trust in you as I do it. And he did. And then finally, he says, and again, quoting Isaiah 8, 18, behold, I and the children whom you have given me. Literally, it's here, here, I and the children whom you have given me. Behold, I and the children whom you have given me. He presents God's children to him in glory at his exaltation. He brings many sons to glory. I'm present here. I am and the children you have given me. I haven't lost any. He presents them holy to the Father in glory. If you belong to Christ, that's you. He's not ashamed to call you brother. He secured your forgiveness. He pioneers the path to glory, and he presents you to the Father. Is it you? Is it? Are, are you a child of God? That's not just by being a human being. No, these are his children, his sons, his 
people in relationship to him through Jesus? How do you become a child of God? You don't do anything. You trust in the Son. You trust in this one, the suffering Son and His payment for you and His redemption for you and His exaltation. You trust in the pioneer of salvation. Is that you? I pray it's you and that you are enjoying this truth. Let me pray for it. We'll pick this up. We've got to see more of the reasons for his suffering next week. Keep reading this. Read Psalm 22 and keep reading these things. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, help, help us to savor this in fresh ways. We confess how often we feel ashamed and feel shame. So let the words just speak to our souls that he's not ashamed of us. He is identified with us. He is our Savior. May we know that and rejoice in it. And may it overcome all regret, all shame that we have. That we are accepted fully, completely, sanctified in Jesus today. We bless you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.